All right. Last week we, um, we were talking about um, some theological things that were going on in the Davidic covenant. And so we've been in second Samuel chapter seven for some time now, and we're transitioning out of the first half of second Samuel seven and into the second part uh, of second Samuel seven tonight. And there's some, just a few loose ends. I want to tie up before we go or a, as we go. And, um, and yeah, Blake has a good reminder here in the chat box. If you have any questions about anything that, uh, that we're talking about, feel free to type them in and I'll, I'll, I have the chat window up so I can see it. So just as you type them in, I'll grab them whenever I can, whenever I can, uh, at whatever point is, is convenient or when I need a drink of water. So, um, just, uh, just go ahead and type them in there as we go. But last week we had, we had uncovered a couple of significant things about David being of the line of Judah and him uh, t- taking, uh, taking over the throne and God making a covenant with him that he was going to establish David's throne forever. That's what's going on in the first half of 2 Samuel 7 is, is David is at first you know, wanting to build Yahweh a house and a temple that would be there in Jerusalem in the capital. And Yahweh says no, and he's, instead he promises to build David a house. And, and what he means by that is really build him a, a, a lineage and promise to leave David on the throne and his line on the throne in perpetuity. And so that, that's a really significant thing, and it's actually a fulfillment of prophecy dating all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob, or Israel, is about to die, and he has his sons before him, and he goes down the list of his sons, and he's giving blessing to his sons. He's promising a blessing to his sons, and he gets to Judah, and he promises that the scepter will not leave the line of Judah. Judah will rule his his brothers. And so David coming forward as the king is seen as a fulfillment of that prophecy. And I had somebody, uh, Ann Aikens, email me afterwards to ask me about, you know, why, why Judah, since he's not the firstborn. And we get several answers to that in scripture. Um, but there, there, and there's a couple that are significant that I'll touch on just very briefly. Um, one, you, ha- you have um, uh, Simeon, who is the the oldest? Uh, is it Simeon or Reuben? Anyway, the oldest of the the uh, yeah, sorry, Reuben is the oldest. Reuben um, was was the one that had uh, basically messed around with Jacob's uh, concubine and uh, and slept slept on his couch, quote unquote. And so Jacob rules him out altogether because of that. And then Simeon and Levi were the two brothers that had gone in and uh, because. Uh, a group of men had raped their sister. They uh, killed them. They slaughtered an entire village of people. And so they, they were ruled out altogether. And so Judah was the next in line for the throne. Um, and so it was given to him. And then the birthright was given to Joseph uh, down at toward the end of the line. But then um, the, the, another significant part of this theologically is that Judah is the one that really saves the nation in the sense that all the brothers are bent on killing Joseph and Reuben, uh, sorry, Judah is the one that comes forward and says, let's not kill him. Let's sell him to some traitors, sell him into slavery. And, um, and so by that act of saving Joseph, he, uh, through Joseph saves the nation essentially, um, that they, they, uh, Joseph goes down to Egypt and, and 
all the people of Israel are saved through Joseph because he obviously allows them to have food during the midst of the famine that would have killed them. And so, um, so there's a couple of big things that are happening there, but for, for, all of those reasons and probably more, Judah is given the, the, the scepter and, and it's prophesied by Jacob that that's going to happen. And so David taking over the throne being of the tribe of Judah is a significant movement in the text of, of fulfillment of prophecy going all the way back to Genesis chapter 49. And then there's an, uh, some important concepts that are brought to, to bear as we consider biblical theology. Um, and as I mentioned last week, I think biblical theology is probably the, the, the discipline that will uh, that study of biblical theology will take you from I, I, I've read the Bible. I understand it on a surface level to I'm understanding a lot of thing, a lot of more complex things that are going on in Scripture. And so biblical theology is that is that discipline of taking any given story and showing how it connects to the rest of scripture from Genesis to revelation. And so it can, it's, it's one of probably the more intriguing studies that you'll do is, is going through a book of the Bible and tracing its, you know, biblical theological roots throughout the rest of the Bible. Um, it'll also grow you much deeper in your understanding of scripture if you, you know, commit yourself to, to really studying that. And, and so I recommended a few books um, last week that I think are really helpful. Another one was pointed out to me afterwards. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy has written a, a ton of books on biblical theology. That's, that's his specialty, Graham Goldsworthy. And I think it's G-R-A-E-M. He's from Australia, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, Graham Goldsworthy. And he's written a lot of biblical theology books, and they're, they're really helpful. Uh, Blake has texted it out there. Yeah, it is G-R-A-E-M-E. Uh, so really complex there. We can thank Mrs. Goldsworthy for naming her son that. Uh, but, but anyway, he's fantastic, and he's really accessible, and uh, he's really, really easy to read. And, um, and so it's, it's, you know, it's, I think it's really helpful to dive into that, and you can begin um, studying uh, Liz asked the question, what's the difference between the covenant God made with Abraham and the covenant God made with David? We're going to touch on that tonight, actually. So if you just hold on, let me get to that question in just, just a minute. Um, so uh, anyway, so as we think about the biblical theological themes that are going on here, um, the, the theme of rest comes to, comes to the forefront. Uh, God has given David rest from his enemies. And, um, and so once God gives him rest from his enemies, then he is, uh, he, he wants to build God a, a home and rest goes all the way back to the garden of Eden and comes to, to bear here on the text that we're in. And then goes all the way through this to Jesus. Um, and then ultimately into revelation where we see rest coming to coming to those who have trusted in Christ and not taken the mark of the beast. And so, um, so essentially, and we see that often uh, repeated every week uh, in the Hebrew calendar uh, where they have a day of rest that they, they celebrate every week um, for the day that, that God had rested. So this idea of rest and, and being at rest from your enemies is, uh, is kind of a, 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 there's a bunch of things coming to bear on that, on that, that theme, but, but not least of which is you're enjoying peace that you have with 
the Lord, a, a relationship that you have with the Lord. You're trusting um, the Lord to provide for you. You're trusting in, in every way for the Lord to provide for you. And um, and so David, having rest from his enemies, is sort of this restored look at the Garden of Eden almost. And, um, and so uh, we see that come to bear on this text. But then... Um, it, it, it's also it it appeared also last week as a review. Just it appeared that that in the let me get to the third slide here. I haven't been changing slides. Sorry. Um, it appeared that in David uh, and his offspring, particularly in Solomon, God was fulfilling His covenant uh, promises to reestablish His kingdom. So Israel, like Adam, had subdued the nations and enjoyed rest from their enemies, and so now. God was giving David the kind of rest that Adam, or, or it appeared as though God was giving the kind of rest to David that Adam had enjoyed uh, peace with God in the garden and eradication of all of all enemies and all unclean things as they're being driven out of the land currently. And we're going to see David in subsequent weeks, next week and on, that David is going to go on a rampage and drive out a, a lot more enemies. And so there's going to be just this kind of perpetual idea that, that, uh, David is bringing the kingdom of God into fruition here um, through driving out the enemies. And then Solomon, obviously building the temple is going to be a big deal. So we want to talk about, there's two sides of the, the coin that we want to talk about tonight. The first is um, this, this last little connection as we leave the first half of, uh, of 2 Samuel 7, we want to connect just one sort of loose end where, how, how does this actually relate to Jesus? And so we want to bring this into the New Testament. And so we have to kind of zoom out a little bit to look at uh, going back, like Liz had mentioned, Abraham, and then uh, coming to David, and then and then going forward into uh, the New Testament and seeing how this comes to fruition with Jesus. Um, and so we want to, we certainly want to do that. And then the second half of tonight is look at David, how David responds to God's covenant promise gives us an idea of how David understands his own role in this process. And so we want to we want to look at that very briefly as well. Um, so the first thing that we need to look at is that, that everything that Yahweh had promised to the patriarchs uh, and Moses is now being invested, it seems, in the house of David um, in order that the whole world might profit spiritually and participate by faith in that kingdom now being established. And so there's this uh, idea that what was the threads that were opened with the patriarchs promised, uh, even really going back to, there's probably, I think, a connection in the Davidic covenant to Abraham here, um, but especially Moses um, and, and really even what I think too is opened up in Adam, that there's this idea that all of this is coming to fruition here with David as he is, uh, you know, being established on this throne. And, and really some of the promises that are reiterated to him have been articulated previously. We've heard these, some of these promises before, and we'll see just, just a couple of these in just a second. Um, so all of chapter seven is really closely linking the need to build a temple with the at some aspects that are articulated in Genesis 128. You remember Genesis 128 is the that falls in that line of, of reasoning of, uh, of let us make man in our image. Um, you know, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them and let them have dominion. 
And so the, the first aspect of this sort of temple building, driving out the enemy, David being established in the land is uh, there's, he's ruling and subduing. He's subduing the land in front of him by driving out all unclean things. And he's ruling the land in that he's sitting on the throne and uh, as king. And he's, uh, he's essentially leading the nation in accordance with God's uh, law. So the, these aspects that are opened up at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 7, a command given to the man and the woman, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Um, that are, that's there in Genesis one twenty eight is uh, is now we're now seeing a little bit at least come to fruition it seems uh, in uh, in in David so uh, look at Genesis one twenty eight in your verse packet there and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth so. That's their command. That's what they're to do. And David, it seems now, is is at least giving a glimpse that he is obedient to that where, where Adam uh, had, had failed in. The second part is that he David is going to be asking for blessing um, uh, as, as God's you know, kingly vice regent. So if you think Go back to the Garden of Eden and really think about that relationship between God and Adam and what God is actually asking or commanding, rather, Adam to do. God is, is, rules all of creation. It's all his. Everything within it is his. So it's all his, but what does he give to Adam and Eve? He gives to them uh, the earth and tells them to be caretakers of it. And they are his image representing him to the rest of the world. The assumption is that they're going to have kids and they're going to do all of these things. And they're going to present, be his image. The, the, you know, the arcane, I guess you would say, term for that is vice regent, where you are the image of the king and what you do in front of others represents fully the king's the king's will. So as you, you know, make decisions with other countries or whatever, you are enacting the king's uh, will with that, that country as his vice regent. Well, here Adam and Eve are made in the image of God and they are uh, given permission to have dominion over the earth. We know God really has the dominion over the earth, but he's granting them a vice regency of dominion so that they might be able to control or, or, or steward the earth as it were. Well, what do we see in, um, in verse 29 of second Samuel chapter seven. Now, therefore, this is what David's asking. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servants so that it may continue forever before you, for you, O Lord have spoken with your blessing uh, shall the house of your servant be blessed forever? So he's uh, asking for this this sort of blessing to continue on in this sort of uh, mode of, of, of vice regency, as it were, much in the vein of, of like what we've seen with Adam and and what we see promised to us and eventually coming to fulfillment in, in none other than, than Jesus Christ. Now, there's it seems there's also a connection back to the Abrahamic covenant, which uh, hopefully brings in uh, either Liz or Timothy's question um, here. 
there's likely a connection between what God is telling to David, I will make for you a great name, and what he tells to Abraham, I will make your name great. Um, so the connection between Abraham, the Abraham's covenant and David's covenant is that David would be seen as perhaps you might say a furtherance of the Abrahamic covenant, which, which would mean that there's, there's some, at least to the immediate audience, there might be an appearance of fulfillment to some degree. And I think there was an expectation that David was fulfilling what was promised to Abraham. Abraham was going to be through Abraham. The nations of the earth would be blessed. The expectation I think of, of David is that through David, the nations of the earth would be blessed. Um, The prophets pick up that it, it wasn't fulfilled in David. It was furthered in David that it was specified in David. So with Abraham, we understand that the nation of Israel that God is basically creating with Abraham is going to give birth eventually to the seed that is going to crush the head of the serpent, which was promised to uh, Adam and Eve and the serpent back in Genesis 3. So there's this, that's really the entire book of Genesis is, is tracing that seed. And you might even say the entire Old Testament is really doing that. But going all the way back to Genesis chapter three, there's a promise God makes. Uh, he will, you know, crush your head. You will strike his heel made to Adam and Eve. Then we see Abraham being the father of the nation that is going to bring about that seed coming about in the New Testament. And what we see coming in David is a narrowing from the people as a whole to now it's being specified down to the tribe of Judah, to the line of Jesse, specifically through David, that this uh, seed is going to come forth and crush the the head of the serpent. So um, I would say at the very least, we have a, a, a narrowing of the Abrahamic covenant and a furthering of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, so we're, we're, he's specifying that it is going to be through David that this is going to happen. And then um, uh, furthering in that it's not yet, it's not David just yet. It's not even Solomon just yet. And the temple clearly isn't the, the fulfillment of that promise, even though many of the Jews had in, had thought that it, it might be, uh, it turns out that it, that it's not. And so I hope that addresses your question, uh, at least a little bit. Um, so Solomon, so then we, we go, we go to the next. Um, so he, there's, there's some connections probably to the Abrahamic covenant here of him telling you, I'm going to, I'm going to make for you a great name. And then uh, him telling virtually the same thing to Abraham, but Solomon's building of the temple. What we see is we get to the new Testament, as we follow this line Um, through the New Testament, the prophets have understood that David wasn't uh, the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David. That that was the inauguration, perhaps, or maybe the furtherance of the Abrahamic covenant, narrowing of the Abrahamic covenant. But it it wasn't the, the fulfillment. Solomon building the temple, even though that had some clear connections in the first half of 2 Samuel 7, 
that, that's clearly your son's going to build me a house. You know, Solomon does that. I mean, he, David's son builds the Lord a house, the temple. But and, and though there might have been some inclinations early on that that was going to be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the prophets start picking up. No, it wasn't. Um, that wasn't either. In fact, the Jews are going to go off into exile and the quote unquote tent of Jesse, the tent of David is going to be a wreck. And, uh, and so the prophets are starting to realize there's a future fulfillment of this that that's coming. And so when Stephen in Acts chapter seven, you'll probably remember Stephen, he go he's standing before the Jews and he's going to be stoned. And before he's stoned, he gives this basically lengthy history in Acts chapter seven of, uh, of Jewish history, essentially tracing um, basically the Jews' story all the way through um, the desert and and um, and into the into the Promised Land and all the way up to the building of the temple. In fact, the building of the temple, the building of Solomon's temple, is the climax of Stephen's story. That's that's virtually where he ends. The history of Israel is this building of the the temple, but. Stephen makes it pretty clear in the text that to the Jews that are standing there who are more or less convinced that, you know, that it's been established. We have the temple. We have a house for the Lord. And so, yes, they need a king. Yes, they need someone to drive out the Jews. But Stephen is is more or less making the point that, no, that's not that's not what you're looking for. You're not looking for a final fulfillment of God's promise in the temple. Uh, the temple's not it. In fact, we can see, uh, let's see this in, I'm going to read the last bit of Acts chapter 7. And I realized this after it was too late. I included 47 to 50 in two different sections here. So if you look at um, Acts seven forty-seven, which is toward the, last quarter of your sheet there, it says, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Meaning Solomon built a house for, for the Lord. And then 748 to 50 is down the last, the last verse here. It says, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So Stephen's underscoring that your temple made by hands is not the the final fulfillment of what God was promising to David, nor was was Solomon's building of the temple the final fulfillment, nor was the restored building of the temple that Herod built uh, the final fulfillment of God's promise to David. Um, And note that, he's reiterating that no human built structure could possibly contain the manifestation of God's presence in his end time temple. Ultimately he's making a case for Jesus, but, um, but he's trying to help them see that what they have in the temple is bankrupt. It's not the fulfillment that they're looking for. No, no human built structure is going to be that for them. And, um, and of course they, they love that. And, uh, and he then goes on to ask them how, um, how many prophets did they not hate and stone and kill, uh, <laughs> throughout the years. And, uh, of course they love that too. Um, 
so they, they stone him to death. But um, so the, the point that's being made here in the New Testament as we move into the book of Acts is that just as Christ's resurrection was the long range fulfillment that would establish the kingdom of God. So Christ tells us that Old Testament is, is cluing us into that. We get a really clearer picture in, in the Gospels, especially but that Christ's kingdom is going to be established by his resurrection. So just as that, the fulfillment of that kingdom being established in his resurrection, also the promise in the same verse there, which is 2 Samuel uh, 7, 12. Uh, let, me, let me read that real quick. Uh, it be on the second page here. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So just as we see that that, that long range fulfillment is going to be established in Jesus as, at his resurrection. Also, the promise, the same promise in, in 2 Samuel 7, 12 about the descendant building a temple likewise discovers its fulfillment in Christ's resurrection. As Christ raises from the dead, he not only establishes um, the, the, the kingdom, but he, it, he, he uh, proves himself to be the very temple of God, the place where God dwells. And then what is the result of that for those who believe in him and are born into this kingdom? Don't they too also become a temple of the Holy Spirit? So we see then in, in Pentecost, uh, which happens before Stephen stoning, but Stephen's talking about, you know, Jesus' death or whatever. But, but in at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit rushes on the, the, uh, the apostles that are standing there uh, as evidence that the Lord is, it, the Spirit is, is dwelling within them. Um, the presence from the temple, as it were, is, is now uh, on top of the apostles. And then Paul later clarifies, uh, others do as well in the New Testament, that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. And so Christ and his body become the fulfillment of God's uh, temple and, so, and, and, and the fulfillment of God's kingdom. Uh, so it, it's, it's coming to fulfillment in Christ. Uh, Period. It, it, it's all Jesus. He is the epicenter of all of it. Uh, he is the fulfillment that we're looking for, and the New Testament is, is bearing that out. So um, we know that the fulfillment of the temple is not in Solomon, and it's not in the, the building of the, the second temple uh, through, through Herod, mainly because um, we know that the promise in 713 is that it, the kingdom is going to last forever, and the 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 throne is going to last forever, and all that I'm promising you is going to last forever. And so the temple is not one that's going to be made by hands, obviously, because the promise is that it that is a forever promise. That's what's being expected here, and only Christ can actually fulfill, it turns out, can fulfill that. Um, but the fulfillment is going to last forever, and the temple that would, be made, would also be made by God himself without any uh, intervention of, of, you know, human cunning or, or wisdom. We see that in, in uh, 711, that the Lord is going to make you the house, not anybody else. And, um, and so we see all of this coming to bear in the New Testament. Um, 
So then what happens in the New Testament is some the New Testament authors begin understanding a lot of the promises of David's tent being restored um, as also referring to Christ's resurrection and the body that is now included uh, in Christ after his resurrection. And so you get passages like Amos 9-11 that we see in that day, says this in Amos 9-11, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And so, you know, you might be inclined to, uh, you know, read the, read the Old Testament. Let's say if we didn't have the New Testament and to maybe think that um, that was in the apocalypse or so- something along those lines. That was in the, you know, day when it's all over and uh, the Lord, you know, redeems his people and, and once and for all, finally, as it were. Um, but the authors of, of the New Testament and uh, in this particular reference is James um, in the book of Acts. See, this is Christ's resurrection and the body that's included after Christ's resurrection. Cause James says this, after this, uh, James is quoting uh, Isaiah or uh, Amos chapter nine. And he says, um, and, and it's in response to the Gentiles coming to Christ. And he says, he quotes, he says, after this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by his name, says the Lord who makes these things. And so James sees the Gentiles coming into faith in Christ and basically the Jew and Gentile actually coming together in the body of Christ, everybody coming under the headship of Christ as the fulfillment of the tent of David, of building up the house of David and the fulfillment of this promise that was given to David in, um, in, uh, Second Samuel chapter seven, and so as we come into the the New Testament, what we're seeing is that no human can build an adequate structure to house God's presence in the eternal new order. Only God can do that, which um, He began to do when He raised Jesus from the dead. He's beginning to build His His body together under the headship of Christ, and then um, it's going to be all consummated, I guess you'd say, in the new creation. Um, so I have inaugurated there, inaugurated, it started with Christ's resurrection from the dead and it will be consummated in his return. So inaugurated slash consummated, uh, in the new creation. Um, so this is why Paul gives the new creation language when he talks about salvation. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone away. Behold, he makes all things new. This is um, you are, you are a new creation in Christ. So the, the new creation that we're waiting to be consummated still when Christ returns has been inaugurated already. And, and in Christ, you are a new creation. You're already participating in, in new, the new created order where the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you and you move at the will of God and under his direction. Um, but then fully, we will do that as the old, as the sinful perishes and is transformed into bodies that will last forever you are uh that's when the the new creation is consummated and we we live in it without any hindrance of sinful flesh or any anything like that um so again if you have any questions just type those in the box i'm going to move through this so we can finish the the worksheet for tonight um but uh, essentially we're bringing the bringing that into the um 
into New Testament language as being fulfilled uniquely in Christ and through his resurrection. And so then we look at David's response that takes place immediately following that. And so I want to read this from, uh, it's the first set of verses in your verse packet, if you want to follow me there, it's 2 Samuel 7, 18 to 29. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is this is instruction for mankind, meaning all mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought all this greatness to make, uh, you, you have brought about all this greatness uh, to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no one, no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears, and all uh, and, and who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for your people, your people for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build your house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken with your, with your blessing. Shall, shall the house of your servant be blessed forever? Um, okay, so um, what we see, what the, the first thing that we see is, in, um, is that David understands um, he reveals his own understanding of the covenant in this passage as he prays to the Lord. And as he thanks the Lord for establishing his house and he, he prays that the Lord would give him blessing to actually see this through to the end. And that the Lord would be you know true to his word and, and these kinds of things. He reiterates several things, but he reveals his own understanding of the covenant. I think in this passage um, in second Samuel seven nineteen, 19, uh, he says that this honor is dwarfed by the promises concerning the distant future and that and that this is an instruction for all mankind. So he, he reiterates this, the promises that you've made to me forever is a long time, Lord. You're, you're making this promise to me and that's forever is, is, is a long time. You realize 
That's going on into the distant future. And what he recognizes, which I think is really, really important, is that this is an instruction for all mankind. And so I want you to think about David's understanding of this covenant. And then also, if you've been joining with us on Sunday, as we've been going through the Psalms, I want you to put in your mind the Psalms that we've been talking about as David is being established on the throne on Zion, God's holy hill. And as the Lord is reigning through him, David is saying, this is an instruction for all humanity. Now, how is it that the king over Israel can presume to say that about all humanity? How is this not just an instruction merely for the children of Israel, since David is, after all, the king over Israel. Well, in the ancient Near East, um, a country or region was thought to be ruled by the God of that territory. Some of you may recall way back a long time ago, we were doing, uh, we were entering into the part on angels and demons very early on in the Bible, and we were talking about the created order and the and we got to angels and demons and, and all of that um, on our website. There's the in the Wednesday night podcast. The series was called Strange, and we did two parts of it: the usual, the stuff you always hear about angels and demons, and then the 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 unusual, the stuff that is just has little scant references here and there in scripture that we were tracking down and kind of talking about some very unusual things that are in, in the Bible. But one of those things that we talked about is the scattering of the nations at the tower of Babel and how the, the nations were given over essentially to the sons of God, so to speak, the, the, uh, um, God giving dominion to, to, uh, angelic beings of, of, a, of a sort. And, um, and, and so the idea being that, that, these uh, territories, these nations were governed by these demonic powers and entities. And we see, um, we see uh, the Old Testament making reference to this at, at uh, various points throughout it, um, but that there is no God except for the God in Israel and um, that they wanted to be in Israel because that's where God is and that's where he, he's worshiped. Um, but the rulers that led these different countries, these kings, uh, were considered to be representatives, the kings were, were considered to be representatives of that local God that they worshiped, which Paul tells us they, you know, was demonic powers, but, um, but that local God that they worshiped, the king was thought to be the son of God. He was, he was the representative, the physical representative of that God on earth to his people. And his responsibility was essentially to make edicts in accordance with that local God and was to rule on that local God's behalf as that God's, that little G God's son. Um, and so um, what do you have then when the Davidic king rep represented not a small G local God uh, over a local region, but he was representing a big G God that was the creator of the whole world, the ruler of heaven and earth, the uh, supreme power in, in, uh, in heaven and earth that to which all creation gave an account, uh, the judge that sits on the throne. And the Davidic king 
is situated on that throne and is ruling on his behalf. Well, when that king receives communication from the Lord that this is how he's supposed to do it or, or whatever, receives the, 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 the uh, God's law, who does that law apply to? Well, David seems to understand that in this covenant that is being made with him, that this is important for all humanity, that they're recognizing the, the king from the line of David, the Davidic king or the, the, Lord, the divine king, you might say, as being a, a, like a son of God who is, who is reigning on God's behalf and exercising dominion, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. And the whole world is put on notice and better listen. And so you think back to Psalm 2. You remember in Psalm 2, the nations are raging. They're plotting and scheming. And what is God's answer to the whole world? I rule heaven and earth. There is no God besides me. And I'm going to put my king on on my holy hill. And there I'm going to exercise dominion over the rest of the earth through him. And so Psalm 2 begins to iterate for us and help us to understand God is ruling through that king, which I've said in the study in Psalms is inaugurated with David, but is ultimately Jesus. One that is the literal son of God is going to come and dwell amongst us and is going to rule on God's behalf perfectly. Um, And so faithfulness on the part of the Davidic son would then affect the divine rule in the entire world. So as the Davidic son is faithful to the law of God that God has given to him, the divine rule would then go out to the rest of the world and he would judge the nations rightly. Well, David can't fulfill that. Solomon can't fulfill that. Rehoboam can't fulfill that. Nobody after that can fulfill that until Jesus. He's the one that actually can fulfill it. Um, so, um, so yeah. Uh, so the Davidic king slash son of God that those images can get, get kind of combined. And so that's why you'll, you see in Psalm 2, today you are my son, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Um, that, that language is then directly applied to Jesus later on, but is there initially David and the, the kings of, of David's line there applied to the Son of God? Because that same idea that's being communicated there, rightly so, that's picked up ultimately in Jesus, that this, he's, uh, God's son ruling on his behalf. That's what a son does, by the way. Um, But the instrument that he's using to rule the nations is what? It's Yahweh's Torah. It's the Lord's law that he's being given so that he may give this to the nations and he may rule the nations by it. Um, This is all the way back into Deuteronomy. When, when Moses is telling them about the king that's go, that God is going to raise up, when he raises up that king, what is that king supposed to do? We've talked about it a couple of times, you remember. He's supposed to uh, know the law. He's supposed to read the law regularly, put it before the people. He's supposed to write the law and have the copy that he writes inspected by the priests. Why? Because that is the governing document. He's not going rogue. He's not representing himself out there. 
He's not trying to, to enact David's will on the nation. He's enacting God's will on the nation. Sounds a lot like Adam. It's exactly what he was supposed to do, be a vice regent on God's behalf, but um, ultimately failed to do that. And, and so here, the Davidic king is not just supposed to enact his own will. He's supposed to enact Yahweh's Torah. In fact, the king is more like a leader in Israel than he is a proper king like we would see around the rest of the world at that time. And so he's enacting Yahweh's uh, uh, will on the nations and therefore bringing them under judgment and bringing them into correction and all of those kinds of things. Um, and that covenant, so, so um, David's own understanding of that divine sonship that he's being brought into by the Lord is clearly indicated, I think, in, in 2 Samuel 7, uh, verse 19, um, when he says, and yet this is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is an instruction for all mankind. And so he's saying that this covenant that God has made for me is, is an instruction for all, uh, humankind from here on out. Now, um, I hope everybody has that instruction for humankind. Um, so theologically the Davidic covenant could be thought of as Yahweh exalting David to an elevated position in Israel's history. That's how the pagan nations would think of that role, being the son of God. Well, that means that I'm in an elevated position and I can rule all of you people and you have to do what I say because I'm the son of God after all. And that now look at how important I am. I mean, you look at any document, basically, that we found in the surrounding cultures of Israel's history, uh, of, of the ancient Near East, down as far as Egypt or around to Babylon, Assyria, it doesn't matter. And you're going to see the kings making a big deal about themselves as the son of God. And they're going to demonstrate how they're in this elevated position and they're making their own name great. This is why I'm so important and why you should worship me or why you should you know, bow down before me. Even, even Rome did that. Um, but David clarifies that y'all, the intention of the covenant is not exal- about exalting David's name, actually, but about exalting Yahweh's name. It's about making his name great. Look at, um, there's a couple of, of verses that make this point. One is 2 Samuel seven twenty three, And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people um, whom you redeemed. And then the other one is uh, verse 26. And I think uh, that one's on the the first page there toward the bottom. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God of Israel. So the very fact that David's line could be carried out in perpetuity is evidence that it's not David that's great. Only Yahweh can do that. And so ultimately what we see is is that um, in, in Jesus, it is evident. And Jesus even comes forward saying that not only will he be worshipped, but that God the Father will be worshipped. He came to do God's will. God's name is the one that is is exalted. And uh, it's his his name that we're to be worshipping. So 
the, the difference between Israel and the rest of the world here in this Davidic covenant is clearly seen in that David understands the intention of the covenant is not to exalt David's name, but to exalt Yahweh's name. And that it's about worship of Yahweh, not about worship of David. And, um, and so, um, so, you know, all of that language is initially David, but then ultimately Jesus. And so it, 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 it proves once and for all that it is about exalting Yahweh's name and not David's. Um, questions, comments? Well, I get a drink. This, by the way, is um, one reason, one main reason why, you know, the, the, the theme of the church has always been throughout history and is, you know, you'll hear me say it a number of times that um, we're making disciples for the glory of God. So, you know, so many people have pointed out throughout history, which has been really helpful that the church's mission is worship of God first. That's primary. And we evangelize and we share the gospel because we're bringing other people into the worship of God. Um, so David recognizes that even as far back as the Davidic covenant. And then obviously we understand that in the New Testament a little bit better. All right, any other questions? Okay, everybody's tracking or mad maybe, I don't know, I can't tell. <laughs> it's just complete and total silence. <laughs> okay, uh, all right. Well, um, let's pray and then we'll be done. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for a time to get together, uh, even over distance. And we I pray um, that as we think about all the things that you have done uh, in us, through us, to us, in spite of us, um, that you continue to do uh, in our world, the ways you continue to act is all about bringing uh, glory to your own name. And that our job as Christians is to share the gospel to bring other people into worship of you because that is what we were created for. And I pray that that resound with us, that we understand that and we get that and we see that coming to fruition initially in David and ultimately in Jesus. And I, I pray that what we, that what we see in, in our reading of scripture uh, is an exalted Christ and a Christ who reigns forever. And that that would uh, shake us to the core, thinking about all the ways in which Christ has uh, given us freedom and peace and hope and helping us to realize that there is no hope outside of Christ. I pray that it would remove fear from our hearts where we're tempted to be afraid, uh, that it would, it would give us boldness where we're tempted to cower. Um, that you would help us to, to see the reality of Christ sitting on the throne, reigning above all, and that that would lead us to, you know, walk onto the spiritual battlefield, so to speak, and speak the gospel to the people that are currently in darkness.
that they may uh, receive the light of the gospel and be saved. I pray that you would do that in us and, and convince us of that truth in Jesus' name. Amen.